Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. No, I don't know what Havery means. Because cruel fortune made me share a landmass with them doesn't mean I comprehend their uncouth Scottish dialect. You unctuous peasant. The following podcast contains... Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you, and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you smoke 2,000 cigarettes just to get the shitty backpack, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 313. I would smoke 500 miles and... I would smoke 500 more edition of the show. We talk about the crazy shit tobacco companies would do to get you to smoke more in the 80s and 90s. Stay tuned. The What the Hell You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Cancer Cash, the smoking rewards program that pays for your cancer treatment in the future. Look, we all know smoking is very stupid and it's killing you by inches, but we also know that you're still going to smoke because you're a big idiot. That's why the Association of Tobacco Companies under court order created Cancer Cash, the only loyalty reward that's redeemable for chemotherapy and other cancer-related treatments. Every wonderful, stress-relieving, great-feeling-and-tasting cigarette now pays it forward for when you are dying of smoking-related diseases. Check out the Cancer Cash catalog from the Sloan Kettering Clinic to pick out your treatment options and redeem the tumor dollars when the time inevitably comes. Cancer Cash. We wouldn't do it, but the court order says we have to. Pardon me? Uh, look, I mean, nothing personal, but tobacco generates a little more heat than, than alcohol. Oh, this is news. Well, my product puts away 475000 a year. Oh, okay, now 475 is a legit number. Okay, 435000 that's 1200 a day. How many alcohol-related deaths a year? Well, 100000 that... tops? That's what, 270 uh, a day? Wowie. 270 people, the tragedy. Excuse me if I don't exactly see terrorists getting excited about kidnapping anyone from the alcohol industry. Well, you haven't even okay, taken into account the number of deaths a year. Bobby, how many gun deaths a year in the U.S.? 11,000. 11,000. Are you kidding me? 30 a day? It's less than passenger car mortalities. No terrorists would bother with either of you. I think I've mentioned before that the very first cigarettes I ever smoked were Viceroy's because my paternal grandfather smoked them like, uh, well, he smoked them like a middle-aged man smoked in the 1970s, which if you've ever experienced that, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot. So they were easy to get my hands on. I still didn't smoke a lot of them because I was like seven. When I started smoking, it was Salem Lights. <laughs> The gentle sounds of springtime seem to say relax and be refreshed. And just as gently, Salem brings you springtime refreshment. For Salem special paper, air softens every puff. 
breathes in fresh, cool air to bring you a softer smoke. Take a puff. It's springtime. And I smoked those because they were my mom's cigarette brand, which is crazy because my mom wasn't a smoker. I mean, she would smoke when she was pissed off at my dad or one of us kids or just life in general. And she usually kept a pack tucked away in a cabinet for those moments when she was fed up, pissed off, and smoked one or two to forget forget whatever it is she was mad about and then promptly forgot she had them for a while. My sister and I, however, knew exactly where they were, so we would smuggle one or two out to take the edge off of our lives. And so it was, the first packs of cigarettes I ever bought were packs of Salem Lights, and it was stupid easy to buy a pack of smokes when you were 13 years old in those days. I find that hard to believe. Oh, come on, if you had four quarters, you just walked into the base bowling alley, dropped in and into the vending machine to get a pack for your dad, then you walked out the door and lit up. So I started buying packs of Salem Lights to slip the couple of back into my mom's stash pack so she didn't know she was out in a pack that she'd probably utterly forgotten about. Meanwhile, I would smoke the rest of the pack, and a pack would last weeks in those days. 20 smokes, one a day max. That was a dollar well spent. I was probably 15 when I transitioned to a smoker. I'd slip out during lunch in high school to hang out with the other cool kids in the alley across the street from campus. How not cool could it possibly not be? Yeah, it wasn't very cool at all. We were transfer kids from the military base, and what we had in common is we didn't fit in, and the only thing we could think of that might make us cool was... About a nice, soothing cigarette. Yeah, so we'd smoke and lie about things and generally hutter together far from the prying eyes of either the school administration or the other kids that went to school there. Funny thing was, kind of worked. The actual cool kids from the designated smoking area on campus, we had one of those, it was the 80s in Idaho, would pass through our alley to get to the gas station nearby that didn't give a fuck about age restrictions on selling cigarettes, and soon enough, we were invited back to campus to hang with the other cool future cancer recipients. Congratulations. I guess that makes you one of us. It did. It was smoking that made me both accepted, and also, it made me interesting. A new high school principal came in during my senior year of school and he banned smoking on campus. Bloody do-gooder. I caught three suspensions that year for smoking on campus, which ironically made me a bit of a bad boy for the non-smoking crowd, thus increasing my status with them. All of this because I inhaled a tube of burning leaves a couple of times a day. What was really strange to me is None of this bothered my parents in the least. I mean, they weren't happy about the suspensions, but I didn't like getting in trouble or anything. They had two rules about smoking. Couldn't do it in the house, and I had to use my own money to pay for cigarettes. Since I had a part-time job, and they didn't give me allowance, who else fucking money was I going to use? It was somewhere in this time that I made perhaps the most important decision a young smoker can make in their smoking lives. I settled on a brand. This is a man who smokes Marlboro cigarettes. What kind of a man is he? I'm a guy who likes to work on my car. I like to take it apart and put it back together. I get to working on it and forget where I am, what time it is. I even forget to eat. You don't forget to smoke, though. I always smoke when I work. (laughs) Which is really strange that I chose Marlboros because... 
I was none of those things. And that brings me to the ostensible topic for this week. What made me, a goofy white kid, take up smoking to be cool and take up smoking Marlboros, a brand whose marketing took aim smack at the redneck, blue-collar cowboy culture way into the 1980s? They did this by creating a smoking cowboy known as the Marlboro Man. The Marlboro Man was designed to be the archetype of manliness. He was hardworking and living free. By 1985, Marlboro was ubiquitous. It was the default cigarette. To be sure, there were still endless other brands, but your first pack of smokes were probably what your parents or older siblings were smoking, and they were probably smoking Marlboros. Once I realized that smoking menthols made me gay, totally gay. Look, I didn't make these rules, all right? I just had to live with them, and I think they're fucked up too. I switched to Marlboro Reds because fucking A, they were definitely not what anyone would call gay. Again, people, these were not my rules. I didn't make them. They were the dictates of a broken society. I blame Ronald Reagan. So I smoked Marlboro Reds for a while, but eventually I wanted to differentiate myself. So I switched to Marlboro 100s in the gold packs. Longer smokes, same price, and most importantly, same heteronormative social status. So I stuck with them for a good year or two before eventually setting on Mar settling on Marlboro Lights, which is where I stand today when I get the hankering to light one. Is that a lot? That's a lot. And once a smoker has settled on their brand, that is pretty much your brand for life however much it might be shortened by your smoking. To be sure, you'll smoke another brand if you have to, but you're always going to go back to your brand. From an analysis conducted in Australia in 2013, quote, the majority of independent brand switching research is focused on the U.S. market and suggests that over the period from 1986 to 1993, around 10% of smokers switched brands in any given year. Independent research concerned with the effects of tobacco advertising on youth has shown that brand choices related both to peer influence and exposure to brand advertising. Furthermore, one 1994 U.S. study found that among regular adult smokers, the vast majority nominated their first brand as their later regular brand, implying immediate and lasting brand loyalty, unquote. 90% is fucking phenomenal brand loyalty for any product, particularly a consumable product. Only Coke, Pepsi, and Apple products have such sky-high brand retention, and Apple is kind of an outlier since no one's buying a new Apple computer or iPhone every goddamn day like you would cigarettes. Honestly, Apple could sell cigarettes. It's the new iCig, and Apple people would start smoking them today. Wow, this design is amazing in the ergonomics, the cylinder with the, with the coated end that you put in your mouth and the other end that you use, this amazing eye Zippo that they've created. I, I can't believe I haven't smoked anything before now, but I'm telling you, I'm smoking eye cigs until the day I die. Still, our buddies at Big Tobacco were never ones to sit back and relax, and by the early 1990s, it became increasingly clear that recruiting new smokers was getting harder and harder. What with that fucking C. Everett Coop telling people, These fuckers will kill you. And the youth of today were not all that motivated by manly men on horses. They needed a new way to convince teens that smoking made them so rad. And a 1992 article from the New York Times summarizes it thusly. Quick aside, can you imagine the New York Times running a positive article about a cigarette promotion 
in 2021. Quote, The notable absence of cowboys from an intensive new promotional campaign from Marlboro Cigarettes is stirring speculation about the future of what has been called the world's most familiar and powerful advertising image. The advertisements in the campaign from Philip Morris USA urges smokers 21 and over to enter a contest to join a Marlboro Adventure team in the fall of 1993. Ten winners will spend 11 days hiking, biking, rafting, and horseback riding through 600 miles of Colorado and Utah. This is the West, gushes the text, where you find your adventure. You don't wait for it to find you. The Marlboro Man is still coarse, said Ellen Merlo, the newly named Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Philip Morris. As Vice President of Marketing Services, she directed the development of the promotion. But we just don't think it's the essence of what Marlboro Country is all about, she added, to have the Cowboys selling a promotion. The adventure team, she continued, is meant to add a modern-day dimension to Marlboro Country without walking away from the core values. By being set in Marlboro Country, she said, it brings the imagery to life, making it more attainable, something people can participate in, unquote. And this spread across all cigarette advertising, and it spread quick. By the mid-1990s, mid-beautiful young people were splashed across the pages of every magazine and billboard in the country, doing exciting young people things like snow skiing or dancing the night away at a club and then stepping out to luxury automobiles, all the while prominently displaying their cigarettes. It was hot. Oh, God, yes, it was. And if you were going to be out doing fun young people things, why not wear fun young people branded merchandise from your favorite cancer stick? And thus was born Marlboro Merch. Now, did a regular company like Coke and Pepsi sell this kind of thing? Of course they did. Of course they sold it branded merch to the public, and in, but in stores. But cigarette companies didn't sell t-shirts. They sold cigarettes. And in a fit of fucking genius, some evil bastard came up with a way to convince people to buy more cigarettes in order to get free crap. And thus was created the Marlboro Old Country Store, which only traded in Marlboro Miles. idea was extremely simple. On each pack of Marlboro cigarettes, there was a UPC code and a little notice that said each pack was worth five miles, meaning that a smoker, say doing two packs a day, was collecting 70 Marlboro miles a week, not to mention an impressive collection of tumors. It's not a tumor. Oh, I assure you it is a tumor or it will be sooner rather than later. Either way, about the best a smoker could realistically do was 3,640 miles in a year on their own consumption. Assuming that you live to collect that many miles, you could actually snag some pretty decent shit. 
a GE open range CB walkie-talkie pair, 2,100 miles, a Swiss Army branded trail watch, 1,935 miles, a river run waterproof Canon camera, 2,100 miles, and Ray-Ban Wayfarers with Marlboro branding, 1,590 miles. Not to mention a selection of t-shirts, fleeces, backpacks, travel mugs, Marlboro branded Zippo lighters, and ball caps in the 90 to 300 mile range. At around two bucks a pack, you only actually paid around a thousand bucks for say that Canon camera that retail from what my research can tell, around 300 actual dollars. Keep in mind that there's no way in hell the average smoker actually traded in their miles for much of anything. My roommate and I both smoked, most of our friends smoked, so one year we decided we would save all of our miles and all the miles we could get our hands on to see what we could get. When it was said and done, we had a smidge shy of around 1,100 miles between the two of us, and I seem to recall us managing to snag a Marlboro Mini Cooler. All I can say is wow! Yeah, 600 bucks in cigarettes over a year between the two of us for a cooler that retailed at Walmart for around $29.95. You must be very proud of yourself. I mean, yeah, we were going to spend that money anyway, but still, what I mostly remember from that time is constantly finding ripped-off Marlboro miles all over the house. To this day, 30-odd years later, I'll pull a book down from a shelf from time to time, see a little nub of paper sticking up, only to open it up and find a five Marlboro Mile bookmark from the mid-1990s. But you know, you could game the system. Bartenders in particular could rack up tens of thousands of miles with very little effort. And I'd be willing to bet that 90% of all that Marlboro merch went to bartenders. From a Mel Magazine article, quote, Michael Quinn, a 49-year-old in New York, was in his early 20s when he and another bartender began collecting discarded miles from drunk, chain-smoking patrons. We had a jar by the register and just plopped them in every night like tips, he says. He and his co-worker got numerous small items like water bottles and lighters, but the holy grail for the duo was matching windbreakers, a feat that was nearly impossible for an average smoker. They had to wait nine months to receive them, but it was worth it. We made a whole thing out of opening in front of everyone at the bar and then parading around the rest of the night in fire engine red jackets that were supposed to make us look like mountaineers, but ended up making us look like friendless wonder twins, he laughs, unquote. What amazes me today is how the secondhand market for this junk, and trust me, it was junk, cheap foreign imports that fell apart after three uses, one if it actually got wet, Apparently, the Youngs are delighted with wearing the crap that killed their grandparents. I completely approve of this action. I kind of do, too. From an article on Fashionista, quote, Something else that's steadily on the rise? Clothing emblazoned with old-school cigarette branding. If you haven't noticed yet, you will now. A Newport hat here, or an ironic camel fanny pack, or varsity jacket there. A red polygon recalling a Trump delay, Marlboro box applied. Uh, a la James Dean, to the chest of a teenager's t-shirt. 
the brands turning to this trend from the contemporary to the high end. You may also see vintage Marlboro Adventure Team merchandise up for grabs on sites like Grailed and eBay at prices ranging from anywhere from tens to thousands of dollars. In fact, noted menswear enthusiast John Mayer shared a haul of Marlboro merch he'd recently copped via his Instagram story, unquote. The story in Fashionista goes on to detail lovingly why this trend is so hip amongst the young, attractive, and wealthy Gen Z, and I'd tell you about it, but I don't give a shit. Of course, Marlboro wasn't alone in their loyalty rewards programs. There was camel cash. In each pack of camels was $1 in camel cash, featuring a white wig, Joe Camel, dressed as George Washington, cigarette dangling jauntily from his giant fucking Afrocentric lips, which were really fucking racist when you look back on it. And I got to admit, Camel Cash was the far better design. No ripping packs apart for little slivers of cardboard. You just pluck the bright and colorful seed out from the back and then toss them in a kitchen junk drawer where they remain to this very day. Go ahead. Next time you're back at your parents' house, root around for the junk drawer and see if you don't find a couple of C-notes and some Marlboro Miles in there. You will. You all remember Joe. R.J. Reynolds' answer to the Marlboro Man because he was a fucking awesome advertising campaign. Joe was suave as fuck, a cartoon camel with a 1940s swinger cool vibe fitting his origins as a French marketing campaign that began in 1974. Ooh la la. Camel brought Joe over to the States for the 75th anniversary of the Camel brand, modernized him, created the iconic look of an anthropomorphic camel in a leather jacket and dark sunglasses, and turned him loose on America in 1987, ostensibly trying to lure Marlboro smokers to switch to Camel. Ostensibly. Ironically, Joe Camel was perhaps the most effective mascot in advertising history, just not for the brand that he was created for. Joe infuriated anti-tobacco groups, and they were like, No! This will not stand! Anti-smoking groups took one look at Joe Camel and decided that Joe was turning kids into smokers. And because Joe was a cartoon camel and kids watch cartoons, ergo, Joe was sneakily marketing camels to kids. And you know what? To be fair... Kids did associate Joe Camel with cigarettes from an article on the University of Michigan's website, quote, In 1991, an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in a rather brilliant move, argued by inference that the brand recognition by virtue of this character was enough to conclude that the company was targeting youth. By age six, as many children could identify Joe Camel as they could Mickey Mouse. On the other hand, as cited in the same article, quote, John E. Caffey, in the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing, wrote of the historical significance of Joe Camel, there's no evidence that Joe Camel advertising increased total youth smoking, which declined between 1987 and 1992. Listen, kids don't smoke because a camel in sunglasses tells them to. <laughs> they smoke for the same reasons adults do, because it relieves anxiety and depression. Joe was a recognizable mascot, so of course kids are going to fucking identify him with the thing that he fucking represents. Joe Camel died at 23 years old, killed ironically enough not by cancer, but rather from all the anti-cancer activists. The New York Times marked his passing 
again with the New York Times talking about cigarette ads like they were cool in 1997. Quote, but the gains in sales and market share for Camel, the nation's number seven cigarette brand, came only at a high cost as anti-smoking activists convinced President Clinton and the American Medical Association, several Surgeons General, the Federal Trade Commission, and other authorities that Joe Camel was emblematic of what they maintained were the insidious, underhanded marketing gimmicks by which cigarettes were sold in America. Particularly, the activists hit home with, con with contentions that slick, Colorful presentations of a grinning cartoon animal were intended to appeal specifically to children to take up smoking. Another quick aside here. There was no Joe Camel Saturday morning breakfast cartoon. The only place a kid could see a fucking cigarette advertisement was in the pages of an adult magazine. It wasn't in highlights for kids. And I honest to fucking God, don't think nine-year-olds were reading Time magazine in 1992. Reynolds has always denied that Joe Camel was anything but a standard marketing tactic meant to persuade adult smokers to switch to Camel from bigger brands like Marlboro, unquote. And so that was it. And Joe Camel was laid to rest. At their headquarters in North Carolina today, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company announced that they are dropping the popular Joe Camel ad campaign. It was one of the most successful cigarette ad campaigns ever devised, so successful, in fact, that it infuriated many anti-smoking advocates. Aaron Brown tonight on Joe Camel's Last Ride. Joe Camel was used to bludgeon cigarette companies in the media and the courts created a public perception that tobacco companies were soulless monsters who lured people willingly into consuming a product they knew was deadly. Which they're not wrong about. But the impact of him on youth smoking was negligible. By the mid-1990s, we all knew tobacco companies were evil and that smoking would kill us. But young people don't care about that shit. For all their marketing, I don't think this influenced my generation all that much. We didn't smart start smoking because we wanted to be a cowboy or because it made us seem exotic or intriguing. We started smoking because it helped. Most of us youngs were slumped apathetically in a dilapidated chair, chain smoking while we tried to come to grips with the bitter truth that our generation was inexorably fucked and we all needed to go out and get real jobs and just when our zine was starting to really take off. Camel Cash, Marlboro Miles all met their end in 2006. There were spates of lawsuits over piles of torn cigarette packs and cartoon camel dollars in, in kitchen drawers, most of which were finally settled around 2009 when the courts said there were proofs of purchase and not gift certificates or other instruments that had to have a set expiration so the companies had to give collectors a reasonable amount of time to re redeem them, which they finally did. Today, Marlboro still runs a rewards program. Each pack's got a 12-digit code that you can plug in on their website to earn something. But frankly, it's a data harvesting operation, and since you need to register and provide all kinds of nonsense just to see what kinds of shit you won't win, I don't bother. But still, it's out there, dangling cheap junks to smokers in return for chunks of their lung tissue. So I got that going for me, which is nice. It's hard to answer. How much advertising or loyalty programs influence modern smokers? Asked on social media how my friends started smoking if they smoked, and they all answered in one of two ways. To make them look cool in high school or to relieve stress in the military. Every single one of them said some variant of, I thought it would make me look cool. Which was wrong. It didn't make us look cool. 
it made us, as one of the people who responded to my query said, quote, I thought it was just part of becoming an adult, unquote. We didn't smoke because of a cowboy or a camel. We smoked because the adult smoked. And what we really wanted to be was an adult. Smoking was one of the ways we thought we could get there. It wasn't Madison Avenue. It was mom and dad. Cigarettes are a drug. And drugs sell themselves. You never see an ad for cocaine. I mean, aside from it being illegal, cocaine and the ads, you don't need to see an ad for cocaine. You know what it does, what it's for, and how it makes you feel, and pretty much where you can get it if you're interested. Cigarettes are the same fucking thing. You know that they will reduce stress and anxiety, and that you also know that they absolutely will shorten your life. Ironically, cigarettes are the most honest product out there these days. Everyone who smokes goes into it knowing full well the cost-benefit ratio of smoking. It's a very stupid thing to do. And it's good that fewer and fewer people are claiming they're not smokers. <laughs> I mean, you're claiming that, but I see you on the corner and I see you bumming cigarettes from me. But that's not important right now. We all know that it was never about the camel or the shitty Marlboro windbreakers. Smoking is a drug. And it's about life being a fucking hellscape and you being able to step outside, light a cigarette, take five minutes to let that sweet nicotine course through your bloodstream. It doesn't make it better, but at least it makes life slightly more tolerable, even as it's taking minutes off of it. Smoke if you got them. <laughs> that is it for the show this week. So, that's the story of Marlboro Miles and teen smoking in the 80s and 90s. And it's the story of how I got started smoking. A better question I could answer is why I still smoke. Oh, but that's honestly, that's a lot easier because I'm an addict and because they make me feel good and because we all got to die of something. Speaking of dying of something, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods. It helps others enjoy the deep, rich inhalation and smooth mouthfeel of what the hell were you thinking, and then start coughing and gagging when they realize that podcasts aren't meant to be inhaled. You can always bum a smoke from us on social media at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter or the show name on Facebook, and you could give us a buck for said smoke if you bum from us at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. All of us stoner kids can be found hanging out on the corner at whatthehellpodcast.com. And of course, we are proud members of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network who want you to know smoking is bad, they do not approve of it, and you should never, ever do it. So for me, Dave, I protect my voice with Lucky's. Bledsoe, producer, Viceroy's filter neatly checks the throat irritants in tobacco. Save a smokes for any throat, inhale without discomfort. Gavin, and all the fictional kin, no other cigarette approaches such a degree of health protection and taste satisfaction on this show. We want to say, when we wake up, well, you know we're going to be, we're going to be the man that's smoking next to you. And when we go out, well, you know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man out front of the bar smoking because I just really need a delicious Marlboro cigarette before I go in and hang out with you and all of your annoying friends. And we'll see you all next week. Well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's averin' to you. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who 
Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.